The word Pascal today can mean a unit of measurement, a computer language, a law of fluid mechanics, and an array of numbers with certain properties. What many people don't know about the person to whom that name belongs, Pascal, or Blaise Pascal, is that not only was he a brilliant scientist, but he was a devout Christian. His ability to reason and to make careful observation led to the discovery of more than certain laws of science. His greatest find was discovering the way to be happy. That's a great discovery, wouldn't you say? There are only three kinds of persons, he said. Those who serve God, having found him. Others who are occupied in seeking him, not having found him, while the remainder live without seeking him and without having found him. The first are reasonable and happy. The last are foolish and unhappy. Those between are unhappy and reasonable. They're reasonable in that they are actually seeking God. But they are unhappy because, as Jesus points out in today's text, true and lasting happiness, it only comes through through knowing him, entering into this life-giving relationship with the living creator and redeemer. Chapter 5, Gospel of Matthew begins like this. And when he saw the multitudes... He went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them. The next three chapters, as I said earlier, are popularly known as the Sermon on the Mount. Pieces of these teachings are throughout the other Gospels, but no, no place like the Matthew. Matthew gets it down in great detail. David Guzik says, it has been said, if you took all the good advice of how to live ever uttered by any philosopher or psychiatrist or counselor, took out the foolishness and boiled it down to the real essentials, you would be left with a poor imitation of this great message by Jesus. Sermon on the Mount. Here we find the most noble teachings on ethical behavior. And it's kind of summarized in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Therefore, and you've heard of this. Almost everybody on the planet has heard this. However you want people to treat you, so treat them. For this is the law and the prophets. In other words, this is the greatest ethical teaching comprised in all of the Old Testament. And many people read that and they go, that's brilliant, of course. That says it all. And they make that kind of their goal, loosely. Millions of people have made this golden rule their religion and believe that God will accept them because they are, quote unquote, good people. In their own estimation, they're a good person based upon these, you know, ethical uh, guides. 
Truth of the matter, however, is that these teachings are not divine laws that if kept will gain you entrance to heaven. We read in Romans 3.20, by the works of the law, that is by, by keeping these ethical um, mandates, guidelines, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. This is really bad news for religious people. For the, all the religion, man-made religions of the world, they're gambling that by the works of the law, they will be righteous in his sight. If I just pray enough, if I just give enough, if I just do enough, I will make God my debtor. And it's a dead end religious experience. But all of the other religions in the world hold to that tenet. The Sermon on the Mount, by contrast, is not outlining the way of salvation, but describing the way a person ought to live because they are saved and have the Spirit of God living in and through them. That's the definition of a believer. Paul calls us those who have trusted in Christ for forgiveness and reconciliation, temples of the Holy Spirit. You'll notice that Jesus does not address the multitude, the mixed multitude. He sees the multitude. A lot of people uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm sure, were just there because, well, there's... You know, this was big entertainment. We got this rabbi, and he's going to come, and nothing else going on. So they would come for many reasons, many motivations, bringing the people in great number to hear him. He sees this mixed multitude and is motivated by love and compassion for them, but it is the disciples that he is teaching. Read verses 1 and 2 again. It's the disciples. These are the ones whom he will empower to bear witness of him and of his teachings. Anybody not familiar with The Chosen, this film series? We're in season three now, and I recommend it's free. Just go online, The Chosen, and watch it, and you, your faith will be inspired. Season three begins with the Sermon on the Mount. And he's blowing everybody's mind. These words, they're just so full of wisdom. The disciples are blown away. And then afterwards, he takes these 12 and he says, okay, I've been doing all the heavy lifting so far, but now it's your turn. And I'm sending you out two by two into all of the countryside here, to every village. And I want you to do what I've been doing. Take these teachings. You've heard these teachings? Go and share these truths with others. And you will be empowered to heal the sick and cast out demons. And they go. And they, they start, you know, doing this. And it's just blowing their minds. And then... 
It says in Scripture, they came back. They were so excited, and they're, they're telling Jesus about how even demons were obeying them, and they were casting them out. And Jesus said, do not rejoice that the demons flee at your command. Rejoice in this, that your name is written in the book of life. That's where, that's where our joy comes from. This life is like a vapor, James says. It's just wispy. There's, there's, it's just transient, and then it's just unstable, and then it's gone. Don't put all your hope in this transient life. Rejoice in the fact that your name is written in the book of life. Isn't that what he told the disciples when they're freaking out in the upper room? The night that Jesus would be betrayed, the night he would be arrested and bludgeoned, He says, don't let your heart, he tells them, he gives them the disclaimer, this is what's going to happen. And they're freaking out, and he says, don't let your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe in me, in my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. It's not this place, it's another place, that where I am, you may be also in all ways. He got their eyes off of their circumstances and this temporal existence. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Look up from whence your help comes. And that's your final home, your destination. It's going to make this little blip of existence on this planet so insignificant by comparison. It's not insignificant because God is using this to train us up and to prepare us and to fit us for heaven, to teach us how to love. To love God and to love people. He begins by disclosing to his disciples what we call the Beatitudes. And you heard that word. It comes from a Latin word, beatus, which means happy or blessed. William Barclay said that this word in the original, original Greek language in which it was written, makarios, it describes, quote, a joy which is serene and untouchable, self-contained and completely independent of all the chances and changes of life. Who wants a joy like that? <laughs> Let me read that again. This is, this is what this uh, makarios, this, this blessedness, This beatitude is, it's a joy which is serene and untouchable, self-contained and completely independent of all the chances and changes of life. Have we experienced some chances and changes? Some people will never fully recover, perhaps, from the pandemic. By you being here, I I, kind of believe you, you know, you're, you're getting your traction again. And that's a good thing. Now, our attitude should be that uh, I'm not going to let my heart be troubled. This isn't my home. I'm just visiting this planet, right? And I know where I'm going. I know my Redeemer lives, Job said. And when I am done with this tent, I, he will see me. I will see him. And we will have our happily ever after. Jesus gives eight reasons, eight beatitudes why believers have been afforded such real happiness. 
in this world and in the world to come. It's a storybook ending, a happily ever after coded into our DNA. It's just the way he made us, that we would yearn for this. We'd have this innate desire to live happily now and every moment thereafter now. This idea of happily ever after that, that so many storybooks conclude with, or they used to, before they, people got so cynical, it comes from God. He planted that in our heart. It's a desire that he plans to fulfill in the heart of every believer. So here we begin with the first beatitude, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Each of these beatitudes speaks of a present and future happiness. When Jesus declares, blessed are the poor in spirit, He's speaking of a present state of mind, a present reality, state of being. Their happiness, he says, is going to extend throughout all their tomorrows, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Referring to, among other things, that eternal home, the kingdom of bliss where God rules. But even now, Jesus says, the poor in spirit are blessed. Not one day will be blessed, but are blessed. The poor are blessed. They're happy. Of course, this sounds crazy. Sounds paradoxical at first reading. We can't imagine how any kind of poverty would lead to happiness. And yet the poor in spirit are happy because they have seen God. When we open up our eyes, both our natural eyes, and we look, not at these plastic symbols here, but you look at what God has made in all of creation. Romans 1 talks about how these things, the things that he has made, intricately designed, irreducibly complex, they speak, they shout of the glory of God, his invisible attributes, his divine nature. We open our eyes, yeah, And we see God through what he has made. But our spiritual eyes, we open our hearts. We draw near to him with an honest heart. We become very aware of our own spiritual poverty when we do that. Recognizing that we have no claim on on God in our own right. Because of our sin. Which causes the open-hearted among us, to humbly receive his gift. There's no way that we can claim God as our debtor. And what it does with the open heart is is it softens us up to to then humble ourselves and say, yes, I got nothing, and I need what you have. And, And yes, God, I receive it freely now, this gift of salvation this gift of a right relationship with my maker and my redeemer. Job, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, Job, very popular figure there. He suffered so much. Satan, God was allowing Satan to trouble him. At first, 
Job doesn't appear to have recognized his own spiritual poverty, for he says in Job 27, verse 6, I hold fast to my righteousness and won't let it go. The planet is covered with people like Job here. I'm a law to myself. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to hold on to my righteousness, and I won't let go. It's the pride of the human heart. He won't let go. But later, in chapter 42, we read, My ears have heard you, and now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He had seen God, and that was the response. What about Isaiah, one of the most revered prophets? It says in Isaiah 6, 5, after having a, a, a glimpse of heaven, where he looks up and he, he says, I, and I saw the Lord in the year that King Uzziah died, and his train, his robe of majesty filled the temple. What happened right after that? He said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the host, the Lord of hosts. When Peter recognized the divine power of Jesus, that he was in the presence of divinity because of this miraculous catch of fish in Luke 5, 8, it says he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Instantly recognized his poverty, his spiritual poverty. No one sees themselves truly as they truly are until they see God. The Christian has seen God recognize their spiritual poverty, and live humbly yet happily in the grace of God. It's the humble person that is willing to receive help from other people. Right? It's, it's the pride in us that says, no, I'm going to pick myself up by my own bootstraps. That's not the way we negotiate a relationship with the living God. We have ceased, the believer has ceased striving to earn God's favor and are content to receive freely from the hand of God the forgiveness and friendship that makes the heart glad. That's what we want to give to these troubled young people this afternoon. Pray that we have success in that at Echo Glen. We want to make their heart glad. They don't have a lot of good days. We want today to be a good day. We are thus motivated to live the most noble life imaginable. Not for what we might gain through our righteousness, through our good works, but out of gratitude for what we have already been freely given. That's, that's the life of a believer. The life of the works-based religious person is constantly groping and doing and trying to earn, never knowing if they've done enough God's favor. 
Christianity stands diametrically opposed to that. We serve God, we love God from a place of security, having received his, his grace, and we do it as an act of gratitude for what we already have, not for we're hoping we might, just might achieve. This is the glory of the gospel. Therefore, William Barclay paraphrases this beatitude in verse 3. Oh, the bliss of the man who has realized his own utter helplessness and who has put his whole trust in God. For thus alone can God rule and reign in his heart for good now and forever. Blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Verse 4, the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Here again, these words sound so strange. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who mourn? This makes no sense to those who have not surrendered to Christ. To the world, sorrow is something to be avoided like the coronavirus. The world went to great lengths to try to avoid the coronavirus, right? Right? They would never agree that Jesus, with Jesus when he says, happy are those who mourn. But who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to those whose source of sorrow shall come to an end. It's going to be righted. It's not ongoing sorrow. It says they shall be comforted. You can't sorrow and be comforted at the same time. Blessed are the, those who mourn. They are going to be comforted. Surely this would include those who mourn over the suffering in the world caused by sin. They shall be comforted now with the presence of God. And in the kingdom age, when Christ rules for a thousand years on a renewed earth, and after that, beyond that, with the new Jerusalem. Out through eternity. No more war, no more pain, no more death, no more sorrow. He wipes away every tear from our eye. That's our future, the future of every believer. But the greater picture here is of those who mourn over their sin, their selfishness, that of their own lives, it's such a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. It's the loving kindness that, that causes us to repent. Leads us to repentance because we recognize that sin or self-will, it destroys everything that is good and beautiful that God has made. There's pleasure in it for a season. And so many people are into this, just immediate gratification. And so... They get this fatness, fatness going on in their hearts and minds, but it is short-lived, and God sends leanness to their souls. So he did with the nation Israel. Because he loved them. The quest for self-rule will suck the life out of us and out of our relationships. In the end, 
It can take the loveliest life in the world and smash it on the cross. That's what sin does. That's the end result. It can take the loveliest life on the, on the world has ever known and smash it on a cross. That's how ugly sin is. It takes the loveliest life. What did Jesus do to deserve that? He came to pay the wages of sin. We wouldn't have to. The good news is godly sorrow over how our sin offends God and others and even ourselves. It creates in us a broken and contrite heart, which it says in Psalm 51, God will not despise. In fact, he rejoices over that broken and contriteness. When we own our sin. So he allows grief into our lives as a path, not a destination. It's, it's, it'll, it, it carries us somewhere. It's a path that leads to repentance and sweet comfort. Again, to paraphrase this beatitude in the words of William Barclay, that great Bible commentator, oh, the bliss of the man whose heart is broken for the world's suffering and his own sin. In other words, blessed are those who mourn For out of his sorrow, he will find the joy of God. In other words, he will be comforted. She will be comforted. The child of God will be comforted. Now let's look at the third and final beatitude for today. Number five, verse five. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. One more time, we're met with this... uh, uh, Enigma here, the gentle, the weak, they're not typically the ones that we imagine as inheriting much of anything. It's the self-promoting, the forceful, the aggressive person that ends up king or queen of the mountain, right? That's kind of the way we naturally think. But God says, look again, the meek person is not the powerless person. What is Moses? The Old Testament refers to him as the meekest man who ever lived. And yet, he went toe-to-toe with the great Pharaoh, the most powerful man, humanly speaking, in the world at that time. And he went head-to-head with him, toe-to-toe. He said, let my people go! That took some chutzpah. He was meek. The meek person is not the powerless person, but the person who is able to keep their power under control. Take Alexander, for instance. We, We use that name a lot, a lot of people, men and women. Alex is a common name. This is the root right here. There are a lot of people named Alex or Alexander. Only one named Alexander the Great. 
one of the greatest men, men uh, who, or more powerful men who ever lived. But he lost his kingdom because he couldn't control himself. In a fit of drunken rage, he threw a spear at his friend and killed him. His military leaders could not forgive him, nor could he forgive himself. His lack of self-control was his undoing. In our text, Jesus is referring to the child of God who by the grace of God has control over their thoughts, has control over their words and their actions, their deeds. Galatians 5.23 says self-control is one of the fruit of the Spirit. It's something that, that, that should kind of identify us as believers. It's not that we never lose our temper, but it's not the pattern and the way of our life. As we sink our roots deep into the word of God and yield to the spirit of God, we begin to naturally bear the fruit of God, which is love. And one of the ways love is manifested is by the outworking of a gentle spirit. We will be, in effect, god control. Come to me, Jesus said. Very popular verse in Matthew 11. All who weary and are heaven laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. Those who are led of the Lord will likewise be gentle and humble in heart. It's just going to be a natural outworking of pressing into the Lord and drawing from him his life. You're going to look like him in Matthew 11. Thus, William Barclay renders verse 5, Oh, the bliss of the man who has every instinct and impulse and passion under control because he himself is God-controlled. Such a man is a king among men. <laughs> Barclay. In summary, the poor in spirit, the first beatitude, are those who have seen God and recognize how woefully short we fall of measuring up to the Lord. So we're poor in spirit. We realize we're not bringing anything to the game. Secondly, those who mourn have seen themselves. The poor in spirit have seen God. Those who mourn have seen themselves. And their godly sorrow over sin has led them to repentance, whereby they are comforted by God. And the third beatitude, the gentle, the meek, are those who have experienced God. They don't need to promote themselves because they know the freedom and the joy of being led by the Holy Spirit. Such fellowship with God is so lovely, is so rich, and so powerful that we never need to go beyond the coastline of God's will to find happiness. To find the perfectly happy life. In fact, it doesn't exist apart from God. Not the perfectly happy life. Some pale counterfeits, you know, are afoot. 
Let us serve God, having found him. Because that's what Pascal said is reasonable. God says, let, let us reason together. Though your sin is as scarlet, it shall be white as snow. Again, God is there wanting to comfort us. It's like we want to comfort these youth today in Snoqualmie. That's the heart of God. And Pascal, this brilliant scientist, he said that this is reasonable to serve God having found him. And it's the only way to a deep and abiding happiness. An everlasting happiness. That's what we want. That's what God affords us. That's the gospel. This is the beginning of our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. God, help us. Help us to receive this first installment with all of our hearts. We recognize today that you are God. You are holy. We are unholy. You're the potter. We're the clay. And the only... We have, we, we're just spiritually impo impoverished. We recognize that. And we mourn and we sorrow, Lord, over the sin that not only surrounds us, but is, that is in us. This per uh, propensity toward self-rule, self-governance, to live autonomous from you. And it, it not only offends you, it hurts others. It's a hurtful way, as David said. And show us today if there's any hurtful way in us that we would turn from it. That's the desire of our heart. Lord, that we would be comforted by you. Lord, baptize us with this gentle spirit, the spirit of Christ, that we might experience him fully, that we might walk in freedom and joy, being led by the Holy Spirit who whispers to our inner self, this is the way. This is the fruitful walk, life. Walk in this way. Walk with me. I go before you. I make a way for you. Do that work in us today. We ask for your glory. Amen. And amen.